I think there's very few who would say this is that the silver bullet will get him out. It's just not. We're just not in that place. It's not a home run for Mr. Dwyer. Can the state uh, legislate quickly enough um, and efficiently and in a manner that's compliant with European legal norms and national legal norms to enable the Gardaí to enforce the law and to investigate serious crime, but also to protect the citizen? I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's an evil and sadistic killer who lured his vulnerable victim into a dark world of BDSM and then tricked her into allowing him murder her as part of his ultimate fantasy. Killer, Graeme Dwyer, is just about the last convict anyone would like to see freed on legal technicality after he was found guilty of the almost perfect murder of Elaine O'Hara in 2015. But this week it seemed he got one step closer to that freedom when a European Court of Justice ruled that some evidence used in his trial was attained in breach of EU laws. Today, I'm talking with barrister Ronan Lupton about the meaning of the legal battle that has seen Europe's top court rule that Ireland was wrong in the way it assessed some of Dwyer's phone records. He tells me about Dwyer's attempts to have his conviction for murder overturned, about the meaning of the European judgment and why ordinary civilians should be concerned about the issues at the heart of his case. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Ronan, the headlines would suggest, and I think everybody needs to calm down a little bit, that Graeme Dwyer is about to walk free from prison with his bag uh, under his arm and be out there stalking the communities again. This isn't the case. I think that's right. Uh, what we've seen yesterday from the Court of Justice is the conclusion of a procedure where the Supreme Court asks six questions of European law of the court. The court has now answered those six questions and the judgment was very much as expected um, when we last spoke, Nicola, Yeah, last you called November. it, actually. Yeah, uh, but the, the procedural judge, or what's called the Advocate General of the court, writes an opinion and that sets out a framework um, which usually is followed by the Court of Justice about 75 or 80% of the time. So you have a very um, strong indication of what way the court will be guided. Um, however, since 2014, when the digital rights case took uh, place and the underlying legislation underpinning um, the Irish Communications Protection Act 2011 um, was annulled, there's been about four cases before the Court of Justice where various aspects of um, communications data law, metadata law, have been ventilated. And uh, I think it's an oversimplification simplification to say or suggest that, look, this is privacy trumping crime. Mm. It, it's not so much that. Um, the privacy and e-commerce uh, regulations from around the year 2000 uh, and Article 15 of that regulation sets out what the rules are in terms of what you can and can't do. And legislation cleverly drafted could get around what it says in Article 15, but the only thing that's permitted in terms of mass and indiscriminate collection of data is for state security issues, mm. and that's quite clear. So the Advocate General said that, the court repeated it yesterday. So to answer your question, no, I, I, I've said this a few times, it's not a home run for Mr. Dwyer. The case goes back to the Supreme Court. The likelihood is that there'll be another hearing, not as extensive in terms in terms of its nature as maybe what occurred in the first time or the first instance. So um, 
What's before the court is an appeal from the judgment and orders of Mr Justice O'Connor from 2020, December 2020, and um, the Supreme Court will finalise that. As I say, I think they'll hear from the parties again because they may need to in relation to what the Court of Justice has said. Mm-hmm. Um, they will then rule on that, and I can't second-guess what the Court would say. However, I think the Court in its judgment, I don't think, but the Court in its referring judgment made reference to a few cases. Uh, one was a case called JC from 2015, which deals with the issue of obtaining evidence and what the rules are in relation to obtaining evidence uh, and if there's bad acting or bad faith in relation to agents of the state, such as the Gardaí, that that evidence can be excluded. But where there's no bad acting and the evidence was obtained in good faith, and I'm paraphrasing heavily here, um, not having the judgment in front of me, the the position is that the evidence may be admitted, uh, and that's the situation. So when you look at the the prevailing winds, if you want to put it that way, uh, you see a situation where the law was the law as far as we were concerned in Ireland uh, up to yesterday. Um, so we now know the position. Uh, I'm not going to say that I necessarily agreed with that because obviously the Court of Justice knows the underlying law in 2014 and we have, as I mentioned a minute ago, um, a number of judgments from the Court of Justice setting out the position. But the Supreme Court did take the position that you know the law was the position um, and dealing with Mr Justice O'Connor's decision prior to that. Um, so can you really say that the Guardian acted in bad faith in terms of what they were doing? I think the answer is probably not. Um, so <clears throat> there will be a bit of work to do uh, by all parties that will go back to the courts when 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 um, when the court reconvenes to consider the reconsider the the, the appeal uh, now having the answers to the six questions. But there's certainly a glide path and a lot of hints in, in the referring judgment, which is national judgment. Um, and I also mentioned a and the governor of Arbor Hill Prison, uh, which was a, a case from a number of years ago, um, relating to a position where. There was a lot of public outcry about the potential for A to get out of jail based on a, a law which was found to be unconstitutional at that stage. So, um, you know, there was lots of work done. Was that done to do with that. the search warrants? Uh, no, I think there was a finding of um, uh, incompatibility in relation to the, I'm going to say the 1935 uh, Rape Act. I haven't got the name in front of me, so I apologise for that. But certainly there was a concern that um, by virtue of a decision and a finding in respect of the section uh, and its constitutionality or clarity that you know that would give rise to the release of uh, a in, in that context it was closely followed then by a case called cnc in ireland which again dealt with um the uh, position um relation to constitutionality of sections under the criminal law so the, those are kind of controversial cases but i only raised them really in the context of what the court hinted at mm-hmm. in its referring judgment and where it might go so just in the last 24 hours we've seen a number of legal commentators make the point about jc um and the obtaining of evidence and what should and shouldn't be admissible yeah. and very interestingly the court of justice has made the same points in terms of the competencies of member state courts to admit data um in you know telephone data or metadata, depending on its own rules. Now that those rules are subject to two principles: um, the principles of equivalence and effectiveness, which are obviously not the simple words equivalence and effectiveness. They're legal principles, and just in terms of very high level summary, what what they mean is that uh, if someone seeks to vindicate their European legal rights, that the courts must apply similar standards. I guess so. That's a tricky position. John um, Gilligan tried to do that, I think, did he? he yeah. Certainly, he certainly leaned on Europe to... to sort That's of right. Uh, we're in that position again. So, you know, there's two two pieces of work, I guess, running in parallel. So we have the Court of Appeal uh, looking at um, Mr. Dwyer's conviction. I think that those sets of proceedings are stayed at the moment. But then the Supreme Court, my view is they will rule probably fairly categorically on this um uh, this appeal and much will turn on what they say. So again, just looking at the hints from the referring judgment, um, 
my view is that they might uh, tie it down in that regard. It doesn't fix the underlying issue about um, the nullification or the nullity of the data retention enforcement directive. So the state um, would probably only operate to um, triage or amend the position for the Guardi after the Supreme Court gives its ruling. Um, but suffice to say, I, I don't think it's a home run for Mr. Dwyer. There's lots of work to be done by his lawyers and others. But also the other issue is, you know, people have said um, on countless occasions during the currency of this particular case, well, what about other uh, convicted murderers who were, you know, incarcerated or awaiting trial? There have been instances um, where uh, barristers or counsel have applied to the court for um, redaction of phone records in certain circumstances based on the um, uh, inconsistency or infirmity of this law, and they've succeeded in one or two cases. Yeah. Uh, but we must remember that each case turns on its own facts, and oftentimes the circumstantial phone evidence or metadata evidence is not really all that instructive in terms of you know gaining conviction. Mm-hmm. Certainly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, people go uh, around the place with mobile phone and data devices on them. So you place people in certain positions in certain circumstances uh, in that regard. So um, I think you just we just have to remember what the position is. And you'll, you'll also remember, Nicola, that um, Joe O'Reilly uh, tested the mobile phone licenses of um, Telefonica 02 to the extent that the Supreme Court, I think it was actually, sorry, the Court of Criminal Appeal and maybe, in fact, the Supreme Court, although I could be wrong about that level, um, but he certainly exhausted all of his appeals in respect of the telephone situation and challenges to licences and all that sort of thing at the time. Um, And we see constantly in court cases, um, you know, defence teams will bring up all sorts of, you know, technicalities or, I mean, I'm just trying to think, Freddie Thompson, in the Freddie Thompson case, at one point, his defence team tried to suggest that his human rights were breached because CCTV cameras had been, uh, you know, they, they had taken images of him from around the city and that they shouldn't have done that. I mean, I know it's not similar exactly to, to phone travel, but it's all kind of in there in the breach. Defence lawyers are constantly looking for a way to get their client either off or on lesser charges. That is their job. Oh, that's what they're doing. And if the law is wrong, it's wrong. And that's yeah, absolutely. The way it is. And, you know, um, we've got to remember uh, in the days of data, which we live in, and data being a commodity, on civil litigation, um, you can turn around and say, someone has breached my data rights, my Article 8, mm. Charter, of the fundamental, Charter of the Fundamental Rights of the European Union rights, my data protection, my GDPR rights, and... Um, and therefore I'm entitled to compensation or an injunction or whatever it is on the civil side, right? Uh, and likewise, you can also exercise your, your rights to access your data, and that's all fine. Mm. Um, when it comes to criminal practitioners and um, the standard by which they must operate, um, it's a standard of beyond reasonable doubt, and that's a very high standard um, to secure conviction. So the state prosecutes everybody or a guard in, in lower courts would prosecute also being or acting as an emanation of the state. Um, so any chink in the armour or chink in the evidence or something that would um, necessarily deem aspects of evidence excludable or you know, yeah. um, or problematic, mm. you've got to exhaust all of those things to do the best work for yeah. your client. Now, in many instances, or most instances, the agents of the state act professionally in a good way. They're not going to bring in things which are fundamentally not right. Um, but when it comes to CCTV cameras, for example, um, just diverting back to the civil side, uh, the DPC recently found in a case uh, or a, an inquiry that they ran down in Limerick um, that there were issues with the placement of CCTV cameras um, for the public benefit. And it was an extensive decision. Um, and cameras were pointed in a certain way at certain you know, traveller sites and locations, etc. Um, 
and there was no lawful basis in some instances for those cameras to be pointed the way they were. So you'd, you'd have to ask yourself whether, um, in the context of prosecution, whether uh, defence counsel would rightly raise issues in respect of the obtaining of evidence in those circumstances where there was no lawful basis for the cameras in the first instance mm. and what the courts would do. So I think, um, back to this old saying of the probative force um, outweighing the prejudicial value, if someone is seen doing something on a camera and the footage is available, uh, the likelihood is the court's going to look at that footage or at least take a view of it um, and allow it in or not, depending on the facts of the case. So yeah. everything is very, is very fact-specific mm. and evidence-specific thereafter. So, you know, you have to... Um, Criminal practitioners, I think, in the country, and you've probably seen the last week, lots of protests in relation to the district courts and the rates of money that they're paid. But they're very clever. Um, they deal with uh, offences from all kinds of minor offences right up to the very, very serious grave offences, which have very high tolls associated with them. So they do their jobs on a different standard to civil practitioners yeah. and oftentimes are not paid adequately, I guess. For and often, and what you have been talking to us about there as regards... Um, this situation with the European courts and the Supreme Court and the Dwyer case, a lot of that that you've spoken about would be heard either that kind of language you're using and all is heard during legal arguments and cases when the general public probably switch off, end of, because they just don't, they're not in tune with it. You're talking about cases in the past that they don't really know about and all the rest of it. And I mean, I would be inclined to sit through legal argument in a court case, in a criminal court case, if I'm there, because sometimes you get the best stories out of it that you can, you know, you can put together after a conviction or not. But, um, you know, I would be inclined to, but I can understand that you kind of isolate or you lose people along the way. But I think with this case, with the mobile phone data that we're talking about, what's actually held the general public's interest is the fact that at the centre of it, in Ireland is Graham Dwyer, notorious character who committed a notorious crime. And I suppose to alleviate the fears that we spoke about, that he's literally going to walk out the door of the prison and be stalking females around the country, um, we need to just go back slightly to his case and to what that conviction was was brought about on. And it wasn't just this metadata phone um Technology. Is that what you call it? Metadata. Metadata, Metadata. No, you're right. It wasn't just that. There was other evidence there that led to his conviction. So just very briefly, Dwyer was uh, brought before the courts and accused of murder of a lady called Elaine O'Hara in in 2015. He was, sorry, he was sentenced to life in prison for her murder in 2015. She was a vulnerable individual who had uh, sort of lived alone. She in her private life, had contacted some BDSM websites. She had communicated over email with people. She had met a few people from that community and had eventually sort of rattled up with Graham Dwyer, who was an architect living two lives. One was within this BDSM world he inhabited, where he had very dark, dangerous desires to stab a woman to death. And his sexual thrill was going to be murder. Unfortunately for Elaine O'Hara, he carried that fantasy through. Um, But when we talk about the evidence that brought him to getting his life sentence, yes, there was some communication between their phones that has led to the European Court and we'll go back to the Supreme Court and into the Appeals Court. But there was other, other, also other stuff, Ronan, and and you've, you've mentioned it before, very significant evidence, really. 
Yeah. <clears throat> well, wasn't the um, summer of the year that uh, this series of very tragic events took place quite warm, resulting in the reduction of the water levels around Wood Reservoir? And a diligent member of Gaelic Shakona fished a set of keys and other accoutrements, I think is probably the best way to put it out of the reservoir at that time. And something as simple as a supermarket club cart gave rise to the identification of the owner of that set of keys. So the weather conditions, and a diligent member of Ngarish 2012, Ronan. 2012, exactly. Gave rise to a position where um, there was an identification of, you know, uh, the individual, I guess, who we now know who's deceased uh, through through circumstances. Happenstance, probably the best way Leo to Hara had been missing. That's right. She and had gone missing and uh, she'd been presumed... Yeah. Dead, but possibly at her own hand. Exactly. So we're, we're hung up with um, metadata and phone data, but actually there's a set of keys with an ID on it. Um, certain movements, for example, in relation to uh, Mr. Dwyer were tracked on um, number plate recognition technology, which is not necessarily mm-hmm. caught by this. In fact, it's not um, in, in relation to this legislation. Um, and the other thing which I think is important is the actual physical text messages found on a physical phone is different to the metadata, which would be retained on a mass and indiscriminate basis, which is subject to the challenge. So those three, and there are other aspects of evidence which which come into it, um, those three aspects are not part of this equation. So again, you're back, you're back looking at, well, what other elements mm-hmm. uh, were before the court at that stage? So, so that master-slave phones were fished from that lake in Randwood, mm-hmm. and they were amazingly... Uh, dried out. I have dropped my own phone down loose, etc., and never been able to dry them out. Or ne- they never work again. But um, and phones in the family have been dropped in puddles and various things like that. But anyway, the experts obviously can do this. They dried them out. They got a lot of text messages, including the the ones in the last hour of Elaine O'Hara's life when she is lured by Graham Dwyer to his car in in Shan- in Shangana. Um, they're outside, and that was very vital evidence. I mean, that was chilling evidence. Yeah. It was very vital in that case. Well, isn't the point, I mean, in terms of the few little pieces we've spoken about, um, we have a diligent guard. We have guardy who are civil members of the force looking at information, um, number plate recognition and so on. And additional to that, information was obtained, which, again, was subject to the civil challenge on phone records, mm. um, which is circumstantial. It places Dwyer and his phones in various areas and Miss O'Hara in various areas at certain times. And, you know, do you accept or reject the contention that you were here or there, Galway or M50 or mm. whatever the other toll location was in the country? But those are outside. As I say, that if you decouple those aspects of evidence, is it enough to maintain a conviction? Again, that's a matter for... And emails um, between them. Yeah, they're yeah. outside of it as well, yeah. and they were found on computers seized. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So those are all hard, yeah. you know, harder evidence uh, aspects, which they may still be circumstantial in part, um, but certainly they're not subject to this particular um, negative finding, you yeah. know, which is of interest. And mm-hmm. I think that's lost a little bit in the in the sort of media frenzy of oh, this guy is going to get hysteria, out. Yeah, yeah, there a little is. bit of hysteria. And again, I, I think that needs to be kind of reined in mm-hmm. and. You know, speaking to criminal colleagues and, and people who work in the regulatory crime area, um, I think there's very few who would say, you know, this is, you know, the, the, the silver bullet that will get them out. It's just not, yeah. we're just not in that place. And um, I think the courts will take a view and, you know, it'll either be the Supreme Court uh, um, when it 
finally renders its, its decision in respect of the civil appeal. Uh, and if it doesn't do that, it'll it'll certainly dictate to the court of appeal what the position is. But, you know, there's nothing really new about the law here in terms of the obtaining of evidence and admissibility of evidence on the national front. And again, just back to that point I made earlier, like, the court of justice made this point. Mm-hmm. They were like, you know, it is a matter for the national court's competence to dictate what's admissible and what's not based on your legal um, uh, operations, if you want to put it that way. So I, I think you know, there's a huge amount of work for, for, for Dwyer's lawyers, but also lawyers of the state. This is not you know, a simple case. And back to your point, I mean, you know, as someone who's as well known as you, you of course have sat through, have sat through a legal argument, and oftentimes legal arguments can be distilled into simple enough points. But when you're into this area of metadata and um, what's what and what the court of justice says or otherwise, you know, the reality here is if it indicates that something has occurred, well, the court should consider it. Mm. You know, um, was it unlawfully obtained? It may have been, but did the state know that it was unlawful at that stage? They may not have. The individuals who went off and obtained this information. And one of the key complaints from the court of justice has been, well, there's no system of supervision, of independent checking uh, to say these records should be obtained. So, you know, a chief super and the guardee can say, I'll sign off on this, and a call or a, a written request should follow within a number of days goes to a telecom company who's known to be the provider of services or a plethora of them will receive a request in one go, signed off at the right level. There's no lack yeah. of compliance with the law as it was or as it, as it currently stands um, to obtain the information, and that's all fine. But as you recall, and I think we talked about it previously last November, Mr. Uh, Chief, former Chief Justice Murray had written a report in respect to the controversy surrounding up the obtaining of journalists' records um, back at that stage. And it was a very wide report written on the issue of independent supervision. So the way around this... Um, in it the looked just of, like there was a fishing expedition going on and that there was records just being looked at for... I mean, was there a criminal offence? Yeah, I mean... Committed? No. In, 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 the, in the 2011 regime... Um, the threshold is a serious offence, which is an offence defined under the 1997 Bail Act of um, minimum duration of five years or an excess of five years. Mm. And that's a key issue. So you're not going to have people looking for phone records for litter offences or parking offences, these sorts of things. And that was a key concern back in 2011 when this became, you know, uh, subject to debate before the House of the Rock. Just, you know, what, what would the um, offences be which would give rise to the retention or the production of records yeah. at a later stage. So it's serious stuff. Um, and I think the courts have taken that view uh, over the period um, since it came into being in, in 2011 to, to date. And I think journalists would suspect that, you know, chief superintendents were signing off investigations into their phones to see who they were talking to, which is not a criminal offence. Well, I, I, Even not, under the Garda Siakona Act, which was brought in in 2005, yeah. the offence has to be, uh, you know, of the level that it's threatening state security or something like that. I'm not that yeah, sort of that's legal correct. term. Yeah. But so, you know, if I have a relative who's a guard and I'm talking to them, that's not illegal. I could be talking to them about absolutely anything. I'm perfectly entitled to have friends who are guards. I'm perfectly entitled to have conversations with members of the Garda Shikona that are nothing to do with state security. Yeah. Academically, um, legal, or sorry, a journalistic privilege is not recognised officially, not a, not formal. And I think that came up in a case that you were involved in many years ago. And uh, But what is recognised is source confidence, and that's an important provision. So when you're dealing with criminal cases, um, purely where someone's guilt or innocence is hanging in the balance, 
the likelihood is that there'll be no privilege available. Um, you know, the courts won't rule in that way. They'll say, no, you've got to hand over the phone or the device or whatever it is in that regard. Um, however, on the civil side, I would be of the opinion that there should be a journalistic privilege um, in all civil matters, with the exceptions um, being determinable by the court. In other words, there must be exceptional circumstances for a journalist's um, data to be handed over uh, and I'm not talking about just your phone data. Yeah. I'm talking about notes and records or whatever else. Because um, freedom of expression is protected by the Constitution under Article 40.6.1.1. Um, and the press is called out specifically in that regard. Similarly, within the Charter, Fundamental Rights of the European Union, and indeed the Convention, which we have a diet expression of, um, which is viewed through the 2003 European Convention um, on, on Human Rights Act. So I would be of the view that the state should um, move to protect journalists as a uh, as a profession or as a trade. Um, there are lots of challenges in that, uh, but it's not insurmountable to do and should that. Should this sort of all happen maybe together or in unison or something? I mean, to go back to our metadata, as it stands at the moment, do phone companies have to hold records on all phones for two years? At the moment, that's what the position is. Right. Yeah, And one year on... Data. So telephone records are two years, one year on data. So IP and um, SIM information, MSI, okay. information. so they have to hold language. them in case they're needed yeah. for investigation. Yeah. Now, there's no content, to be very clear about that. It's simply just yeah. A and B end and all yes. that sort of thing. So it's just clearly my phone, your phone. Yeah. You know, they, they were they were in communication, but it's not what, what was said. Yeah. But um, so that remains the case that the phone companies are have to hold that data. But now the situation is uh, because of this challenge and when it comes back to the Supreme Court and they ultimately rule, it will be that chief superintendents can no longer not, not, look for this. Not necessarily. It just depends on what the court says. Right. Um, and how it views it. But I, I think I think we're skating to a position where, you know, ultimately the act gave rise to the activation of a piece of European legislation, which is annulled. And that's a problem. So the state, and I've said this um, previously, the state do need to repair this problem. Um, and the, the Court of Justice was at pains to point out four specific areas where it's previously adjudicated on aspects of um, data, if you want to put it that way, or identification information in the metasphere where information can be obtained. And the first one was the targeted retention of traffic and location data, which is limited. And again, it's kind of limited in time, limited in content you know, in terms of what you're looking for. So what, you you, you, you can specifically say the 9th of March? Yeah, in terms of categories of person or geographic location, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, IP addresses assigned to a source or, or of an internet connection. And yeah. Again, that's open season as far as it goes. Um, so that's interesting to know. Okay. Um, retention in terms of the civil identity of users of electronic communication systems. And I think that, from my point of view, and again, I'm reading the judgment in the, in the round, is a signpost for the French authorities who were before the Court of Justice during the hearing um, yeah. last year. And I think there's a judgment due in respect of that. But if you have... You said 13 countries rattled up to have a little... Yeah, 14 meeting. total as far as I understand. So including Ireland, there's 14 so there. So we may um, not be alone with our... We're, we're certainly not. No, yeah. I think that's right. And the other thing was a, a concept called um, quick freeze or the expedited retention of traffic and location data in the possession of service providers. So that, you you know, if um, a circumstance arises where, for example, the man who was subject to that aggravated burglary a couple of weeks ago I think it was Ross Connor Sligo, and he was left in a bad condition. Yes. The Guardian were worried about using the retention of data um, provisions to 
get access to the records, which would triangulate, necessarily triangulate his phone to where right. it was, and the perps had that. Um, so again, you know, these are issues which fundamentally need to be looked at by the And what would an issue be in that case? We, we would need to legislate that if a serious crime is suspected of being happened, that they the guards are operate in the following way. Operate in the following way. Yeah, so Either A, go to court to get a warrant for this sort of stuff, yeah. or B, we, we retain the situation where a chief superintendent yeah. signs it off. Well, I, I think that's a problem. You know, if you look at the Murray report yeah. and you look what the court has said now on three or four occasions or five occasions, yeah. a system of independent supervision must be put in place. Right. So do you take a current member of the High Court and assign them to, yeah. you know, simply dealing with phone records? Or do you take a district court judge, probably a district court judge, like a regulatory court, court aid, something mm-hmm. like that, um, who receives these requests, signs off from them and so on? But ultimately, you know, the chief super would have to do that too. It's not the work. And they have to do it for loads of things. Oh, I mean, yeah. they have to apply for warrants for, for yeah, lots and yeah, lots yeah. of things. One, so. one of, I mean, one of the fascinating features of Court 8 in the Dublin District Court is the amount of very complicated cases that ends up before mm. the judge sitting there. And there's movable, like the judges change from time to time. But you have um, foreign uh, applications for evidence, for example, mm. um, the, what's called the MNAT, the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaties. So if a company is located in Ireland that has servers, you know, dealing with pornography or um, other content that could be of a criminal nature or stuff has got onto those servers, suddenly um, authorities uh, rock up to the Irish courts, usually with lawyers represented um, or papers are conveyed to the authorities in Ireland um, seeking mutual legal assistance and the judge in that court has to sign off on it. So it's not like we don't do aspects mm-hmm. of this already. Mm-hmm. Um but the question is, um, how do we just fix that problem in the intervening period? And I think that is an answer. Now, I don't think any judge will thank me for making that suggestion. But at the same time, it's very difficult for the guardie at the moment. At the moment, because yeah. they're just in limbo. They don't know what to be doing. Well, and I'm sure they have legal advisors who are saying to them, yeah. know, crack on until the Supreme Court make the decision and mm-hmm. we see what, what the position is. But it doesn't really assist because you have that moment of, well, if I just go about my business here um, and I now know that the Court of Justice has ruled on it, yeah. Um, does that mean that the prosecution is in jeopardy at a certain stage? Because back to our point from earlier on, a, law, a clever lawyer will just bring this up and say, well, sure, look, um, this should all be excluded because it was unlawfully obtained. And they knew. Yeah. And they knew. Yeah, as they knew there was a problem as opposed being to back, in the balance. back here in yeah. the, in the, uh, the Dwyer yeah. era when they didn't know. That's right. I mean, the, the, for those versed in European law, I mean, as I mentioned, there's four or five judgments from 2014 onwards which deal with various aspects of surveillance and mass collection, um, two from um, the UK, as far as I understand, and two or three from France, one from Germany. You know, there's, there's yeah. plenty of paperwork there to, to say mm-hmm. this is what the position is. And the court asks its questions, entitled to ask those questions. So um, you could see that, you know, some component of the Dwyer case could end up back in the Supreme Court again from the mm-hmm. Court of Appeal. It's just hard to, to measure um, where it'll land. Um, but we could be in a um, four or five uh, the first of a four or five phase of play to mm-hmm. put user rugby parlance on it. But, um, you know, ultimately we we, we will see um, fairly shortly, I would have thought, well, within the next 12 months, mm. what the court, the Supreme Court will do with this when it goes back. And, and then will we need to work with Europe then if there's other countries and will we need to in some way try and create our new situation no, in tandem um, with them? I don't think so. Certainly there are European laws that... Um, dictate how behaviour should occur. So you have anti-terrorism laws and you have mm. um, child pornography and trafficking, which is obviously extreme violence and crime to children who are, you know, in, in that position. So there are certainly legal norms and 
directives, regulations, and so on, which which exists with the state will have to cater for. Um, but no, the the answer will be that a national regime will have to come into being, which complies with the carve outs under the e-commerce and privacy aspects. So again, as I said, I thought it was a little bit trite just to say this is privacy trumping crime. It's not so simple. Um, you can definitely legislate, but um, there's contortions to get to that stage uh, and make it right so that the guardian have the confidence to say, I'm entitled to make a freeze request in terms of this person's information, or I'm entitled to um, make a request subject to somebody rubber stamping it, like a judge in the district court to say, look, I need a warrant to surveil Nicol Tan's house, or Roland Lupton's house for a period. Now, there's a Surveillance Act too, by the way, yes, which isn't yes. part of this. Um, that's a different piece of legislation, but mm. just in terms of the metadata mm. that we're talking about, uh, there are ways of doing it. And apart from journalists being, you know, concerned about the way things were, shall we say, yeah. um, every civilian should have been, because, you know, there are all sorts of scenarios that you could find yourself with your, your, your metadata being, you know, yeah. investigated that's right. against the law. That, that's certainly possible. I think I have strong levels of confidence in the Gardaí not to act badly. Mm. And I think in the general sense we're well served by them. Um, I don't want to come across as being a complete fanboy. There's always bad no, I somewhere do. in the I agree with you. But, and um, most of the time they're not honest, no. basically. I mean, even yeah. why would you be interested in somebody like, you know, you know, a normal person's metadata? Like yeah. what, what would it serve you really? Mm. Even a fishing exp- expedition within that isn't going to really find much. Not really. They were talking to their mammy five times and, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I, I don't want to say nothing to hide, nothing to fear, but at the same time, you know, this yeah. issue of wholesale mass indiscriminate reporting mm-hmm. has been subject to the finding we now know Unlawful. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm. Um, turn it around. So again, another area I occupy in terms of a, a, a chairmanship of a trade association here is to do a telecoms. I mean, the telecom companies may take a view on this once the Supreme Court rule and say, well, we're no longer going to retain this information. Mm-hmm. Um, we keep it for six months or something like that. So again, the state needs to be alive to that point as well, because, you know, um, what's to say that someone doesn't turn around and say, well, you've been recording my information for a period of time here, and I have a problem with that. Um, the legal position is as it is now. Um, and I don't think it's going to change that drastically. So, again, the telecom companies will act in the best interest of what they believe to be the case. Because Ireland has a history, you know, we've, um, we're not that far out of our troubled past. In fact, arguably, we're still in it. Um, and prior to the t- 2011 regime, we had the 2005 Terrorist Offences Act, which mandated the retention of what we call metadata for the purpose of this discussion, but phone records and other types of record for a period of three years. Mm. And prior to that, again, arguably, you could have said between three and six under the old PNT regime, um, where there was a very serious issue with subversive activity in the state. Um, you know, this is before the sort of cab acts and all that sort of thing, but, but the currency of the cab acts and other um, serious crime uh, um, certainly became or came to the fore uh, from the sort of late 90s and onwards. So we did have a regime here under national law prior to the 2002 and 2006 European data retention enforcement directives of retaining information. And again, historically, that was the right thing to do. So again, you know, when you track it back, um, there's nothing that new about this. Um, And did we see abuses on a wholesale basis? The answer is no. Indeed, when you say historic, like to me, in the modern world, really, of criminality, nobody's using their phones. They're using other forms of communication, yeah. um, you know, even Facebook messaging at one period of time seemed to be safe. Twitter DMs, people are using 
WhatsApp, they're using Signal, they're using all these encrypted phone technologies. Are we too late really trying to, or is this for the sort of crimes that aren't organised maybe and, you know, could be useful for if somebody commits something and then tries to get away with it? There's a big debate about accessing encryption keys, for example, and I would be, I I disagree with that. Um, And I also disagree with mandating um, lack of anonymity online. Okay, yes, service providers should be able to track who the user is if they want to. Um, you know, operation anonymous account, for example, right? That that's fine because your criteria are put in when you sign up for something. So there should be a throat to choke, if you want to put it that way, and to say, look, it's actually Ronan Lupton operating as whoever, um, Benny Hill online, yeah. and he's saying what he's saying. He's defaming. That's a different thing, from whatever. Um, but similarly with encryption keys, we, we've seen some pretty mad suggestions about you know having access to these things. At the end of the day, like <laughs> encryption works, and for certain communications. It has a place. There's no two ways about that. Um, I'm one of the lucky people who never joined WhatsApp, for example. I've only missed a stag, the odd funeral, a few baptisms and so on along the way. But I always had a, a concern over the security of the platform. Um, and right enough then, the WhatsApp... Nothing to hide, Ronan, you said. Nothing at all to hide. Um, they're more than happy to look at my delivery <laughs> orders or whatever it happens to be or all of those things. But I use traditional text messages. I do use the Signal platform, for example, which is, you know, not that dissimilar. Um, but it was interesting uh, earlier, well, towards the end of last year, we saw a decision of the, the Data Protection Commission where information was being shared between WhatsApp and Facebook, for example. Now, there are similar undertakings in terms of their organization structures. Um, but the phone data was was creating short records of contacts that were not used of the WhatsApp platform. So those are issues, you know, that, that have come into the sort of sphere of technology and um, regulation and, you know, data rights and, and so on. Um, so I think there needs to be a view taken on uh, um, how communications occur. I often wince a little bit when I hear this issue of we need to have controls on speech and so forth. And um, when you look at what's going on in the world, in Ukraine, for example, the very tragic images we're seeing and, you know, the speed of uh, um, media uh, around the world. Um, And you look at the behavior of Russia, for example. 2016 saw two events occur. One was the election of Donald Trump. I didn't think he would be elected, to be honest. But a lot of what went on before that election was questionable. There was interventions, no two ways about that. Maybe not on the voting, but in terms of Clinton's position and so on. And similarly, Brexit. Boris Johnson conceded defeat before the vote came through, and it was marginal. And then we know about Cambridge Analytica. And journalists such as Carol Cadwallader and others have been subject to a major um, opprobrium, but also legal cases um, in terms of their views uh, and some strategic litigation um, in the data wars. Um, so data is very much front and centre of geopolitics. Elections, over the last um, 24 hours, we saw this issue of disinformation regarding elect- electoral cycles. And we've seen Sinn Féin with voter databases, which, you know, questionable in the context of GDPR. So there are bad actors out there, and we need to watch what goes on with our information, with our data. People say, oh, well, sure, isn't GDPR the latest hook for, by which to hang your, your lack of compliances on? Maybe so, but there are data rights. And we're very lucky in the European Union um, to have those rights. US, for example, doesn't have those rights, maybe the exception being California and some other states. Um, so th- there we are. But um, back to the sort of criminal side of things, you know, crim- criminals will act um, in a way where they think they'll get away with what they're doing. And the question is, can the state uh, legislate quickly enough um, and efficiently and in a manner that's compliant with European legal norms 
and national legal norms to enable the Gardaí to enforce the law and to investigate serious crime, but also to protect the citizen. Ronan Lupton, thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.